Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right. Hey, we live in a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately kind of world, don't we? People are always asking that kind of question of their phone carriers, and I think that's all right. Um, Their jobs, the government, and churches even, um, children of parents, what have you done for me lately? If you're asking that of your parents, don't ask that. Um, Parents of children sometimes, uh, spouses to each other, and sometimes we even are like that with God, like what have you done for me lately? that's a real shame. We're, we're, we live in a consumer culture, and in that, it's hard to know where to shut it off because so much of life is geared towards consumption. All of our commercials on TV are telling us that your life's not complete unless you have this product or you're doing it this way. And I don't know about you, but uh, anybody else getting tired of the, the uh, prescription medication commercials that are on TV? <laughs> Take this, and then it will have all these side effects too. Right, and uh, we just—I think—in some ways, we think we can also medicate everything into the kind of life we want. And 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 I'm not trying to make a comment about uh, proper medication, but the whole um, point here is that we live in it, this kind of culture that is a consumer culture, where we're not only asking, "What have you done for me?" but "What have you done for me lately?" And God isn't like that. God's a giver. Everyone on the side of God should become like that. We should become like him in that sense that we, we still have a, a need of things in this world. We still need to, we still need to buy bread, and uh, most of us need a vehicle to get around or um, things like that. I'm not saying that we should stop buying things that we need, but after having received all that we've received from God and from his blessings, then it's time to give. Amen. This is a good place to get up and walk out if you don't like where this is going. But but this is this is where this is going, is that God is a giver and and I think that it's God's will and that everyone in church is in ministry. I think that's God's will. And we have a choice about whether we're gonna believe just the way things are or if we're gonna believe what the Bible says they should be. Because the way things are are not always the way they should be. And even in even in church, that it can be that way for uh, much of the history of the church, we've had this idea that somebody does church for us, that somebody um, does mass, and we observe mass. We go to observe what's going on there, and that's really not a biblical view. We we turn to, like, the letter of Corinthians, one of the Corinthian letters, and it's a call to participate, and we hear it in Ephesians that we're part of this and that we're to, uh, we're to build one another up into Christ as each each part does its work. And that not everybody is one kind of part, but we have all different kinds of parts coming together into the body of Christ. And and as we operate in the gifts that God's given us, and we have the focus that is not inward but outward, then the church can grow, and it should grow as a result of that. But too often, we're still locked into a way of thinking, or we can be locked into a way of thinking that says, what have you done for me lately? And so when God asks everybody to be involved in ministry, uh, what that looked like in the early church was that they encouraged one another. They helped with each other's needs. Remember how in the very earliest of church, um, everybody shared everything in common. And so when somebody had a need, the church ministered to that. And so there, there was that ministering to one another and help with each other's needs. There was witnessing. Um, it's not just people who have the title evangelist that are witnessing, but as the church went out as a result of persecution, they witnessed and they told other people about their faith and the church grew. Uh, there was teaching, and teaching can happen at all levels, you know. Uh, there's this verse in the Bible that suggests that everybody, in a sense, should be a teacher. Now, I don't think everybody has the same calling to the office of a teacher, but the Bible says that some of you, you should have been teachers by now, but you're still having to be taught. And I think, I don't think that that is trying to say that you come to a point where you never need to be taught. I think it's saying that teaching ought to lead to a place 
where we're passing on what we know to others. Part of the thing that we do at church is not just to come consume for ourselves. And this is why I think we often get bored with the Bible is that we're just taking it in for us. And what we need to be thinking about, I think, is, okay, I'm absorbing this. How does it benefit my kids? How does it change how I look at culture? How do I communicate this to my coworkers? And so as we're coming to the Word of God, it's not just to us, but it's also through us that the Word of God is given. And so when we come and look at it that way, then we're being enriched, not just so we can uh, have this glut of information about the Bible, but so that we can pass that on. And when that happens, glorious things can take place. So they challenged each other in the early church. Um, Few people in the history of the church had the resources and opportunities that we have. You know that? Uh, And now we can give to missions around the world. We can communicate globally. Uh, We have better access to resources. We have more access to Scripture than we've ever had before. Do you know, if you speak English, you have more translations of the Bible available to you than any other language. In fact, I would I think that probably it would be accurate to say all of the other languages combined. That's how much scripture you have. And, and we need to appreciate the Bible that we have. Uh, I read this book a while back called um, In the Beginning, the Story of the King James Bible by Alistair McGrath. I think it was in there that he, uh, he said that uh, before Bibles were being printed on the printing press, they were being copied by hand. And uh, the average Bible cost two months' wages. So I thought, I'm going to look up the median wage in America per individual, and I think it was somewhere around 5000 If that is striking to you, then I don't, I don't know what to say, but 5000 times two, can you imagine your Bible costing ten grand? That's, that's a, in fact, uh, Bibles also were so rare at that time that they had to chain them to the pulpit so that people wouldn't steal them. Imagine having that kind of problem. A lot of times you can't even give them away today. But there used to be a day in which um, people would try to steal them. We have the Bible. We have the Scripture available to us. And um, we can we can go uh, really to really faraway places and we can preach the gospel. And we continue to have needs in the local church. Um, as mentioned a little bit ago, there's opportunities to serve here. There's a lot of opportunities to serve in different ways. And as we work together, it makes the mission of the church possible to accomplish. Now, God can make all things possible, I know. But one of the ways he does that is he ministers through a collective group. And we each do our part. And some are in areas of service. And you might think that's lesser. But do you remember in the early church that they had this dispute between the Grecian and the Hebrew widows? Do you remember that? That's Acts chapter 6. And there was starting to be this grumblings. And, and underneath it was this racial undertone. And so the advice that came was, let's find some people full of the Holy Spirit. For what? To serve tables. Like, I don't need to be full of the Holy Spirit to clean toilets or to run in the sound booth or whatever. I think the Holy Spirit gifts people with gifts like that for his glory. Do you know that? Do you remember in the Old Testament? It's kind of striking. But in the Old Testament, it says that there were some people that were endowed with gifts of the Spirit so that they could do artisan works, like the people who put the tabernacle together, that they were full of the Holy Spirit for doing that task, for craftsmanship. Amen. That's good. So don't think of it as a lesser thing. Like if, if you're not at the pulpit preaching or teaching a Sunday school class or leading worship on the platform, um, I think probably there's a great glory in serving God at times in unseen places and being full of the Holy Spirit to do that. That's a little sermon on top of the sermon today. Aren't you glad for that? So uh, there is opportunity for unprecedented reach in in ministry. Like if you, if you grew up during the days of the like the first century, most of the time, people didn't move from their location. They stayed put in their community for their whole lives, their whole lives, okay? And so what that meant was <laughs> if you don't like your church, too bad. You better get along with people because that's the only church in town. Are, are you with me? And if you don't like your community, too bad. You got to learn to live with that. Now we just like uproot and do whatever. But 
the whole thought is that all of life's ministry in the local church would be revolved around that group of people. And now it's not bad or it's not good, but now we have the opportunity to reach around the world. We have a couple of ladies that just came back from Tanzania and Rwanda. There's a group that's getting ready to go to Peru, and we're going to pour out resources to build churches in Peru. And so we get to have a global touch to the church, but we have to be involved in pouring out and not just taking in. And, so, and for that, it requires some motives. I want to talk about this for a little bit, a model in ministry from the Apostle Paul. We'll read our passage in just a moment, but let me talk about motives. What are motives? Motives are the reasons we do things. The reasons we do things is from the, the Latin word, a Latin word, which means to move, to move. Motives are things that move us. Anything that we, we do requires some kind of motivation to do it. Okay? Uh, people who, who lack proper motives lack proper motivation. I don't know if you've heard the story about Larry Walker. In 1982, he decided to tie some helium balloons to a lawn chair. Anybody heard about this? And uh, 45 weather balloons he filled with helium. And uh, I took a little BB gun with him, decided that if he got too high, he would shoot the balloons and then come back down. Well, when he got up there a certain height, I think he dropped the pistol that shot the BBs. And uh, he got up to 16,000 feet. I think somebody flew past, a pilot flew past, and it's like, there's a guy up here in a lawn chair with weather balloons. And I don't remember exactly how he got down. I think um, maybe he cut some of the balloons loose and slowly slowly descended back down. And he got back down. They asked him, Larry, Larry, Larry Walker. I think it deserves two names, don't you? Larry Walker. Why did you do that? Walter. Sorry, it's Walter. Why did you do that? I was bored. (laughs) Great motivation for doing things. I just was bored. I don't, I think that um, there's no reason for any Christian ever to be bored. Are you with me? Like, a good answer to I'm bored is, well, have you read your Bible today? Have you witnessed somebody? Have you done any ministry? Have you checked on somebody that's in need of encouragement? Like, there's always stuff to do. It's just where are our appetites? What are our motivations? And so when we talk about ministry, ministry requires motivations too. We need to be motivated, and there are good reasons for doing things and bad reasons. Let's look at our, our verse here in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. It was not in vain. It was not empty. Something happened. Verse 2, we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. With the help of our God, we dared to tell you this, his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or improper motives, impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak to those approved by God. We speak as those approved by God. Let me slow down and read this right. We speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or from anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Some of our manuscripts have infants here. We're like infants among you, just as a nursing mother cares for her children. So we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but ourselves as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hard work. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel to you. You are witnesses, so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live a life worthy of of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. 
For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. It takes motives to do ministry, and Paul deals with some motives here. And there are some wrong kinds of motives. People have done ministry from the wrong kinds of motives, the wrong reasons for doing the right thing. Because it's not enough that we do the right thing. I think we need to also ask ourselves the hard question, why are we doing this? That's important because God cares about the heart from which ministry happens. One of the wrong reasons, let me give you five wrong reasons for doing the right thing. One is because of personal gain. When personal gain becomes the primary reason, we do the right thing. We do ministry. We minister to others because it benefits us. We've operated from the wrong motive. A second one is like it, and you might say this is kind of a good thing, and it is, but it's not a good primary thing. Do you know that we, we have to put first things first and then second things after that? And a second bad reason or primary reason would be that it gives us a purpose in life. Okay, That's not the best reason for doing this, just because it's given us purpose in life. People invent all kinds of useful fictions in order to trick themselves into having purpose in life, and they're not really doing it from the right motivation. And we can do it because... Uh, gives us something to do. Well, there's better reasons to do with that. And then the third is because there's influence in doing ministry. You can have influence in people's lives as you, you share your advice or you share the Word of God or uh, you encourage them and you become important to them as an influential person. And, and there's something in that that we kind of crave. We want to be people of influence. And, and it's okay to want to be influential for the right kinds of things, but it's not the best primary motive. Are you with me? Okay, because uh, some people, they want to be influential more than they really want to say what God asked them to say. Then the fourth thing is because of approval. We want to be approved by others. And fifth, because it's satisfying and there is some satisfaction in doing the right thing. Those things are all okay. Most of them are okay for secondary motives. I would question some of them, but... These shouldn't be the primary reasons for doing ministry. We should pour ourselves out because we love God and we love other people. That's our our primary motivations for all that we do as Christians. Love of God, love other people. Are there secondary motives that sometimes fall in? Yeah, there are. And one of our jobs is to try to manage what our primary motivations are and always keep first things first. Okay, Because there will be a day when secondary motivations may have to fall away and then we have to rely upon whatever our primary motivations are. Okay, I'll give you some examples of that in just a moment. But these shouldn't be the primary reasons. There are, uh, there's a, uh, the primary reason is loving God and loving other people. If our motives shift from those, then what comes from our lives will begin to sour. It will. And hidden motives, they don't stay hidden forever. So they will expose themselves in time. Uh, you can fool some of the people some of the time. Right, and all the people some of the time, I don't remember exactly how that goes, but you can't fool all the people all the time, right? You know what I'm talking about? So we've got to be careful that we're doing things from the primary motivation. In Paul's day, just in an, as it is in our day, there, are, there were fake preachers. Do you know that? Paul deals with that in some of his letters, especially 2 Corinthians. He calls them with ironic quotes, super apostles. 2 Corinthians. Look it, up, look it up. It's in there. Super apostles. Uh, that these people that claimed to be something, though they were not anything, um, but they were going around uh, proclaiming great power, having great influence, proclaiming a certain brand of Christianity that emphasized how great they were. And uh, Paul calls them super apostles. He was already dealing with this uh, early in ministry, People with a messed up message, messed up motives, and messed up ministry philosophy. Thessalonica would have had a lot of these kinds of things coming through because they were right on one of the major highways, the, the Via Ignatia. And so 
lots of people travel the interstate, and that's where they were going. They would go through Thessalonica, and what a great place to sell their spiritual wares and make their money doing that. And so Paul, I think, is talking about this for a particular reason. And so what comes next uh, is this example, as we just read here, of the way that God would have us do ministry. I've wondered at times why the Bible doesn't spend more time on some things and less time on others. Have you ever wondered that? Like, we've got an introduction here. On first glance, if we're honest, this isn't very interesting. Is it okay? Will you think me unspiritual for having said that? This isn't super interesting. Like, this isn't, this isn't Elijah on Mount Carmel, right? Okay, and I'm just being honest with you because what I want to invite us to is the understanding that even when things don't appear interesting on the surface, there's something to be gleaned that's necessary for us spiritually. And so we, we look at it in depth. We take time to, to break it apart and to dissect and, and to put it together and understand what's the big picture, what's the small parts, and how do they work together. So some things in the Bible we'd like to know. I'd like to know. I wish I knew what Jesus was like as a little boy and as a teenager, don't you? Or early manhood, like as he's doing his job. What's he look like when he's out there building farm implements or cabinets or whatever it is that he was working on? What was that like? And the Bible's pretty quiet about that. That's a little troubling. Like, we want to be fixated on stuff like that. Tell us, tell us more. Tell us some of the secrets of the book of Revelation. Come on, what does this mean and what does that mean? And, and break that up and define things for us. And so we're not so confused. We don't get that. We'd like to have more miracle stories. And there are miracle stories in the Bible. But this, is, this isn't like that in this passage. And I've concluded that what, what's here is what God intends. And so it must be more important to our discipleship than some of the things we wish we knew. Are you with me on that? Do you think God superintended the putting together of his word? Yes, I do. And I think that probably the selection was part of that process of God's inspiration, that he chose what was there and what wasn't. And some of the things we wish were there, we want to <laughs> consume on our own desires, like this is what we want to know. And some of the things that are there are, are like vegetables that we need but we maybe don't like as much. Some of you like vegetables, and that's wonderful. And some of you like broccoli and cauliflower, and some just like cauliflower. And I don't know where you're at, and I'm not trying to divide the church on that, but my thought in that is this, is that we like some things, we don't like others. And the interesting thing is that different people like different things, and we need a variety of things, and this is part of what God has given us. And so it's important to our discipleship to know it, um, and the question that I'm asking about this passage is, why is Paul telling the Thessalonians this? Because they're the first hearers of this. Why is he telling them, when I first came to you, this is, this is how we did ministry? Why is he? Because it seems they're already on board. Is he telling us this because Paul knows that in 2023, on a Sunday morning in September, we're going to be talking out of this passage, and he needed to prepare something for us? No, I think he has written this because it communicates some spiritual truths that transcend time and region, language. Are you with me? Do you agree with that? I, I think that's important. Otherwise, what are we doing here? So he's given us some things to understand from this passage that I think we need to know, that there, it's important to uh, who we are as Christians. I think Paul originally wrote these, number one, to strengthen their allegiance to Christ. He said, when I came to you, if you look at verse 1, my coming to you was not in vain. In, in other words, the ministry that happened there had an effect on you. And so now he's writing and he's saying, remember what kind of apostles we were. Because when Paul left, there were a bunch of people that were coming behind him trying to run down his message and run down his name. And in so doing, is trying to sabotage the gospel. So Paul is saying, look, I want you to be strong in your allegiance to Christ. The second thing is he wants to inoculate them. Is it too soon to say that word? He wants to inoculate them against false teachers. And so he's telling them, look, when we came to you, if you know our ministry, you know how we did things. 
We weren't after pleasing ourselves. We were after pleasing God and ministering to you. So he's pointing out his motives so that when other people come, they can see the difference. Okay, They need to know that. We need to know that too because now more than ever before, there are Christian teachers of all kinds out there. Okay, And by all kinds, I don't just mean different denominations. I also mean all kinds of motivations. You with me? Okay. And uh, you need to be discerning. And you can, there's, there's a trick. There's a book written back in the 80s called Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. I don't know if you've heard about this. But he talks in one of his chapters about how the television or a screen in our day, because now we can watch this on our computers, creates a sense of intimacy. Because you get to see close-ups of that person's face when they're talking to you. And they might be talking to you about the things of God. And there's a false sense of intimacy. And he makes the point, you don't really know that person. Paul says, know the people who minister among you. We need to know one another. And that is from that heart that we can really understand what true ministry is and how it takes place. Paul is saying, look, be careful. There are false teachers out there. And then the third, he wants to inspire them with the same kind of heart for ministry that he has. He's not content with just saying, hey, go out and do ministry. There's a kind of ministry. There's a ministry heart that needs to be communicated. And this is what I really want to get at today is that if we're going to really flip the paradigm on its head, this consumerism, this me first, this the reverse the directional flow of our lives, then we need to get the ministry heart like Paul has that's from Jesus for other people. With me? So what we get here in Acts chapter 17 where it tells the story of his visit to Thessalonica, we get to hear the bare facts of it. When we hear what Paul says in this First Thessalonian letter, chapter 2, we're getting to look behind the scenes into Paul's heart and into his methodology, his manner, his mode, his form of doing ministry. And we need that too because it's not enough for us. Like, so, have you ever met somebody that they're out there winning souls and putting notches on their belt? Like, this is how many souls I've won. They don't care about the people. What they care about is they need to have another name added to their ministry list. We can do ministry for that reason, and it's, it's, it's ugly. What God cares about is people. Can you love people even if they reject your ministry to them? That's the question, because if you can't, maybe our motivation's wrong. Okay, So we're getting a behind-the-scenes look here. The detail of the message is described, um, and here we enter into motives. Why did why did uh, they do what they did? We have here Paul showing us the way he does ministry, and this is part of our edification. So should we skip over it? I don't think so. What I see here are the values of ministry as given by the Holy Spirit. The first thing I want to point out here as far as um, ministry priorities is that Paul views proclamation of Christ over personal comfort. Listen, Proclamation of Christ over personal comfort. What that means is that I will go wherever God sends me. I will do whatever he asks me to do. I will share Jesus even if it means personal discomfort to me. Come on, if you accept this, God's going to get a hold of your heart. So welcome it in because this is a really important. Look at verse 1 and 2 here. It says, you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you is not without results. We had previously suffered suffered at Philippi, uh, suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you the gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we made did not spring from error. And, and we'll go on to that in just a moment. But notice in these two verses, he's talking about something that has happened in Philippi and continued to happen in Thessalonica. Philippi and Thessalonica are both in um, Macedonia. And Paul, when he left Philippi, he's kind of forced out and he made his way down to the Via Ignatia from there. He he skirts across and goes through a couple other cities and finally comes to Thessalonica. And he finds the same kind of suffering and difficulty there. Do you see that? It's right there. We suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. So you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to 
we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. So suffering in Philippi, strong opposition in Thessalonica. But do you think it's going to stop Paul? He's not, it's not going to stop him. His life mission is to make Christ known. And he's not the only one. I see that in, in minus, minus Judas, right? All the disciples and the replacement for Judas. And more than that, who were willing to lay down their life for the cause of Christ. And I see that as a New Testament model of what the Christian life should be like, that it's not us, but it's about him. We sang it this morning, not to our name out of the Psalms, but to your name be the glory. Not to us, but to you be the glory. And we see it uh, in John the Baptist. It's the John the Baptist credo for his life. Less of me and more of him. Less of me and more of him. I must decrease that he may increase. And so... Paul is putting proclamation of Christ over personal comfort. Now, I like comfort, don't you? I have my, uh, my concentric circles of comfort. And it centers, the center of it is probably either the chair in my living room or the chair in my office. Both of them are great places to feel comfortable and safe. And then you get outside of that and get out into the world, you know. Remember what I think... Uh, Somebody said to Samwise Gamgee, it's a dangerous thing to step out the door, right? It's, there's danger out there, and it's, it's uncomfortable, and sometimes it's uncomfortable being around people, and there's awkward moments, and, and, and that's not even the outer circle of our comfort zone. There's places where it's legitimately dangerous, right? And so the question that I would have, and, and one of the dangers that we probably face more than any other is, Will we offend somebody to the point that they won't want to be our friend anymore? Will we offend our family member where they won't want to come around anymore? Like that's probably the ex- like probably we're not going to get beat up because we're Christians. It may happen, but that's probably on the lesser likely side of things. Are you with me? So personal comfort has to do with some kind of awkwardness in relationship. You think Paul would let him himself squirm about that at all? I don't think so. I think that he was willing to put the proclamation of Christ over personal comfort every day of the week. In fact, uh, there was a prophet that told him, Paul was set on going back to Jerusalem, and the prophet told him, he said, this took his belt, did this dramatic object lesson, bound his wrists. He said, this is what will happen to the man that goes to Jerusalem. He'd, He'd be bound and beaten. And Paul said, I'm not only willing to be bound and beaten, but also to die. Because this one thing I live for is to make known the mystery of the gospel. And so, proclamation of Christ over personal comfort. Number two is Paul prioritizes pleasing God over pleasing people. Pleasing God over pleasing people. He always prioritizes, what does God think about this? Sometimes I think we think first, how will they think about this? And then we go and ask God, what do you think about this? But he always prioritized pleasing God over people. You can see this in a few verses, but verse 4, it stands out. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You can't please everybody all the time. And you find that to be the case. If you ever take a stand, you will make enemies. If you take a stand about anything, and if you take a stand in the middle, then you've got enemies on both sides. It's true. So the thing you need to ask is, where, do, where would God be pleased with you? Paul says in Galatians, Galatians is a little bit harsher letter than the Thessalonian letter. It's very harsh, as a matter of fact. Paul is really frustrated with the fact that the Galatians have let the gospel get perverted by false teaching. So he says, um, I'm a servant of God, and if I'm a servant of God, I can't be a servant of men. I can't be a servant of men and be a servant of God in chapter 1. He understands that these things run contrary because at the end of the day, if you serve two different masters, you have to choose one. So is it going to be people or going to be God? So we're asking that question when we do ministry because not all ministry will be popular. At times you'll have to say hard things. At times you'll say things that will be misunderstood. And it wasn't intended to be hard. but And then... The other thing is, and we feel this right now, is that in our culture that if we stand on the morals given to us in the Word of God, then we're considered narrow-minded and out of date. And so none of us are intending that. 
the lovingest people I know are church people. We don't intend to be harsh or push anybody out or make anybody feel bad. That's not what we're aiming for. What we're aiming for is truth, and we want what really is best for everyone. And so we proclaim that, and we stand on what pleases God creates with a design. And that design, when it's violated, creates suffering. You with me? And so um, we have to ask the question, what pleases God? And there are times in a loving way we have to take our firm stand and say, this is truth. And we love you, but this is truth. And this is God's truth. And if you have to, say it this way. I didn't write it. This is God's word. But, and I love him, and I trust him, and he knows what's best, even if I don't understand it. Okay, we please God over pleasing people. And Paul is saying that here is that when I came to you, there was a certain amount of suffering that happened because we butted heads with people who are teaching something different. But I wasn't trying to please them. I was trying to please God. And I wasn't even trying to please you. He says it a little bit later on that we weren't trying to win your approval even. We're trying to win the approval of God. We don't need to curry people's favor. We just need to go and we need to legitimately be loving people. And if we do that, I think God will make known our character. Okay, he'll defend our character in that. Number three is that uh, Paul prioritizes, and this is a great ministry value, calling over corrupt motivations. Okay, there's a better way to say this. Maybe uh, cravings could be one because whatever these reasons, these other reasons were, they would have been things that would have been used in order to benefit Paul. So look at verses 3 through 5 with me, and you'll see, I think, what I'm talking about here. The appeal we make to you, and the appeal would have been something like, repent and turn to Christ with all of your heart. Come serve him. Enter the kingdom. Come to know Jesus. That would have been the appeal. Our appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. Why would they? Why would he do that? Nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. We never use flattery. We didn't put on a mask to cover up greed. God's our witness. So when people do those other things and don't prioritize their calling over these corrupt motivations or um, cravings, like maybe the craving is for greed. It's mentioned here, like, I'm doing this ministry for money. That's mercenary to do ministry for money. Okay, I, I think that's mercenary. I think uh, it's appropriate. <laughs> I hope I hope you understand this. It's appropriate for a church to take care of their their pastors and missionaries, but that's not why good missionaries and pastors do it. Do it for the a reason. Like if even if I didn't get paid, this is what I do because it's what you're called to do. Okay, so there's a prioritization of, uh, prioritization, is that right? Prioritization, that's right, there we go, of calling over these corrupt reasonings. We didn't put on a mask, we uh, we didn't use flattery, we didn't use these other things in order to get something from you. Maybe it's not money, maybe it would be, um, influence, or maybe it's power. Some people are not driven by money at all, they're driven by power. Some people want to be influential and have the, they have these other motives that are not pure. And so Paul is saying, no, what drives me is my calling, that God arrested him on the road to Damascus and turned his life the other direction, and he's forever grateful, and from now on he'll serve Jesus to his last breath. Why? Because God has said, this is what you're to do, and... and <laughs> Sometimes we, when we call people to salvation, we, we save the difficult part for later. Like, the, just come and accept Jesus into your heart. And we, we forget to tell them, oh, yeah, and you have to s- repent of your sins. You have to turn away from them. And you also have to die to yourself. Come on, did you know that's in there? <laughs> Got to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. We'll talk about that later. Let's just first get you in the door. But look how God dealt with Paul. God told him right at the beginning of his salvation, he said, he showed him all that he must suffer. And he laid it out there, and Paul still said yes. If you knew at the beginning how difficult some days would be, we might think twice. (laughs) Okay? But I have to tell you, 
the way of the sinner is hard, okay? It's following God's hard sometimes, yes. But we have the help of the Holy Spirit who can do all things. The way of the sinner is hard, and you got no help except the world to, with their fair-weather friendship, tell you, oh, that's just the way it is. Life is misery. misery. That's terrible. Why not go God's way and have his help? If it's going to be hard, at least let it be hard with his help, and he can make it possible. So Paul prioritized calling over these corrupt reasons, and then care over command. I want to be careful here because... There are commands in the Bible, and there are times if you're a parent, you have to issue commands. You probably don't call it that. You probably say, you need to do this. <laughs> in Greek, they have a, a way to spell words that are imperatives. They're commands. It's got a certain spelling on the end of it, and it tells you this is a command. And interesting thing about it is, is that the most common um, class of words in Greek are describing words, indicative words. They just tell you what is. And then far less than that are the commands. I always thought, maybe it's because of the kind of church I grew up in, commands are the exciting part. It's the thing that he's telling you, you must do. And let's command everybody to do this. And when you become a pastor, you get to tell everybody what to do. That doesn't, that doesn't work as well as you, you'd think. People do what they want to do. Okay? Best we can hope to do is encourage and give God's word and let let us be informed so that we can decide. But I'm saying all of that to say that there are times for command, but if you notice Paul's tone here, he said, when we were with you, we prioritize prioritize care over command. Look at this, verse 6 through 8. It says in verse 6 here, we were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. We could have said, you guys need to straighten up and listen up because we are apostles after all. Instead, listen, we were like young children among you. And then the next verse, just as a a nursing mother cares for children, so we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. Surely you remember brothers and sisters. One translation I read was dear family. Brothers and sisters, surely you remember our toil and hardship. We work night and day so as not to be a burden to you or to anyone while we preach the gospel to you. Your witnesses, and so is God, how holy, righteous, blameless we were among you who believe. For you know that we dealt with each of you. Listen to this once again. Familial relationships. We dealt with you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of the gospel or worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So notice the priority here is care over command, that he would would rather urge them than boss them. He would rather tell them the reason why than simply tell them they must. There are times for that, and Paul uses imperatives. But but listen, he says in verse 7, we were like children among you. Children, okay? Children are those without any natural authority. So they come into a situation... Nobody is, hopefully, nobody's bossed around by their kids, right? Or that's not the way it should be. They have no authority. Like, what are they going to do? They're going to strong arm you into doing something? You're stronger than they are. Your will, hopefully, is more, has more metal in it than theirs, and you can take the stand, and you have a better perspective of time. All of that to say, children don't have any natural authority. And so Paul is saying, we're taking the position of acting. He's not relinquishing his authority as apostle. He's saying, I'm acting in a way that says, I care about you, and I'm not coming from the position of authority as I encourage you in the things of God. And the next thing he says, we were like mothers in verse 8. And what this, this talks about nursing mothers, and this is the nurturing care of giving what's needed to them. Do you, do you hear the tenderness in that? And even when it comes to fathers, we might be like, oh, here comes the heavy hand. Wait till your father gets home. <laughs> anybody, anybody hear that? My mom, I, I would have rather had my dad all the time. My mom, she didn't know the limits. But, but also, there was a side of dad's disapproval that you, 
you loathe. You didn't want that. But that's not the kind of picture we're getting here in verses 11 and 12. Instead, what he says is we were like a father dealing with his own children. Notice that it's encouraging, comforting, urging you to live a life worthy of God who calls you into this kingdom of glory. This is bringing, this is a father bringing his children into maturity of purpose. Okay, okay. Encouraging, this is what life is about. This is how you need to respond to life's challenges. This is how you show God to be worthy in the world. So Paul takes on child, mother, father, and his relationship with them. It's a very care-oriented ministry over command. He does at times, I want to just reemphasize this because I'm afraid you might have heard that it's always soft. It's not always soft. Sometimes Paul commands. He commands. Sometimes he does that. But I think he always prefers. And what we see, especially 2 Corinthians kind of bears this truth out, is that he always tries the gentle approach. And if that doesn't work, then he brings the thunder. Anybody, you know what I mean? So we have care over command. And finally, integrity over impression. Okay, we are big about image in our culture. A lot of times we'll hear people say that, uh, you know, image is everything or that uh, perception is reality. I don't think that's true. I think reality is reality. And that if we care less about how things are perceived and more about how things really are, then we can have true content to our character. You, you know what I'm saying? That we get, it, we get wrapped up, and this, I think, is probably always been the case, but is reinforced by entertainment culture and politics that we just have to care about the impression. So we have PR people that are out there making sure that the image is polished and look, looking good. When what probably we really need is ethics people and character building people to help people be what they're supposed to be. And then if you have a person of good character, I know maybe this sounds naive, but I just think in this world, true character will win out in the end over image. Do you know what I mean? That God will vindicate those who are here. I don't mean that it's always nice and squeaky clean. What I mean is that in the end, God will vindicate those who've done the right thing. Amen. It's good preaching. Look at verse 5 and 10 here. Verse 5 says, you know, we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness to these things. We were not looking for praise from people or from you for, or for anyone else. Then verse 10 with me, it says there, you are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. So you know how we dealt with you. So he's talking about the reality of who they were. And his integrity is that his words matched his life and not trying to put on an image, like a facade, caring more about how it looks than how it is. Folks, that's character, caring more about what it is than what it, how it looks. And if you care about how it is, then how it looks most of the time will take care of itself. So it matters not only what we do, but how we do it. And the whole way through this, God is in the middle of it. I'd like you to notice in verse 2 that he's the one empowering this ministry. In verse 2, he gave us courage to speak about the gospel in face of opposition. God empowers us to do ministry. We could ask him and he'll help us to do ministry. And there is opposition. I, I counted 10 different words that are used in this passage for difficulty. And God helps with all of that. The next thing is, is that God helps by sending. In verse 4, he's the one who entrusts us with ministry, and he sends us to do it. So we all have a ministry, and I don't mean that we're going to all have a Damascus Road experience where we're interrupted, and then God says, and you're to be the church secretary for the next 15 years. And it, does, it doesn't always work that way. Do you know what I mean? That there, A lot of times he leads us into an opening where, our gift can be used in a particular way, the giftings he's given us. And, and I think part of that comes, too, because we're looking for it. Sometimes we don't see opportunities for ministry because we're not looking for them. We're looking for ways to avoid inconvenience and busying our schedule anymore. And then the third thing that God does to help us is that he evaluates. He's called upon to witness motives and actions 
as the one who sees in verses 4 and 5. Those verses say that um, we speak as those approved by God and trusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please you uh, or people, but God who tests the heart. He tests the heart. And then verse 5, you know, we never use flattery, nor did we put a mask on to cover up greed. God is our witness. He tests the heart. He is our witness. He sees what's happening on the inside. And then verse 10 uh, says there that you are witnesses, and so is God. Once again, witnesses. That God is superintending ministry. Do you know that? So as we do ministry, he's watching what we do, but he's also watching the heart with which we do it. And he cares about all of that. So God is in this, and we should be a part of it. What do we need to do here? This is my closing stretch. You'll be glad for that. What we need, I think, number one, is we need a proper prayer life if we're going to have proper motives so that God can give us the heart that he wants and he can uproot the wrong things that are in us because there are competing motives. And even when you start out trying to do the right thing, other reasons can can begin to show themselves. Another motive can can ease in. I think this is probably one of the big temptations when churches get larger and larger. The motivation may change from I want to do ministry to I want to build a crowd or I want to keep a crowd. And then the motivation has changed and it sours ministry. And that's really unfortunate. And so we need to be in prayer so that in that prayer time, not only are we asking for things, but God is working on our heart in prayer. And he's dealing with what are what's what's going on in terms of our motivation? Okay. Um, a great example of this is Peter on Simon the Tanner's roof. Remember, and he's worried about because um, there's somebody coming to meet him that's a Gentile. They're going to go. He's going to go to a Gentile, and he's worried about being unclean. And there's a little bit of an irony here because he's on a Tanner's house, and a Tanner is a place where they deal with skins, and skins are the skins of dead animals. And if you're a good Jewish person, you're not supposed to really touch dead animals or it makes you unclean. And so there's already a little bit of a contradiction, like he's making compromises in one area, but he's not willing to do it in another. But God gets a hold of his heart and says, look, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Take and eat. And in that prayer moment, he has a vision. It's not always going to happen that way, but he was redirected in his course. The second thing I think we need is we need scriptures to remind us of the right reasons and to give us examples of godly people with right motivation, and we see that in the Apostle Paul. We see that in Jesus. We see that in Peter, though Peter's a great example of, at times, having mixed motivations. Um, You can see that in the lives of people in Scripture, and so Scripture will call us out. It's one of the reasons we read it, not because it's comfortable or we always feel like we're eating dessert when we read Scripture, but because it calls us out on our stuff. Okay, we need that. And then the third thing is that we need to ask ourselves Hard questions. What is my motivation? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Okay, you need to ask yourself that. You need to be, uh, in a way, your own preacher and your own convictor. And I'm not trying to push the Holy Spirit out. I'm saying to you that part of our responsibility is test our hearts. Okay, judge ourselves so that we don't have to be judged by God. Ask those hard questions. Why am I doing this? That's a good question to ask of almost anything. Why am I doing this? Number three, uh, or number four, excuse me, we need friends who can tell us the truth so that we can change. We need people that can tell us in our lives the truth about us so that we can see it because sometimes we have blind spots. And number five, we need to do the right thing when there's no other reason to do it except that it's right. Look, pragmatism is not a good primary philosophy. Pragmatism says if it works, it's right. That's not a good primary philosophy. It's, it works sometimes as a secondary thing. But the first thing has to be, is it the right thing to do, whether it works or not? Right? And then we can start to ask the questions, okay, now that I'm trying to do the right thing, what will help me get to that goal? Then you can bring in some practical reasons. But we need to do the right thing because it's the right thing. So let me speak really quickly to a common response to challenges to do better in terms of motives. Uh, We need to understand there's always competing motives in life. We're never going to be like this one pure thing and everything else is pushed out. Hopefully there's a one central thing, and the other things would be invaders that try to take its place, and we have to repel those. But I bet you'll never find it where there are no other 
tempting motives. I think we'll always have things that want to come in and take us away from the true motive. So there's these competing motives that um, that uh, can come in, in in doing ministry, working for God, serving others. For example, there can be personal satisfaction in doing what God asks us to do. Okay, If you do uh, ministry and you're doing it in a way to please God, you can feel satisfied with things. And so when all these things are right and you've done it the right way, if you're satisfied with that, it's okay to be satisfied with that. But that's not the first question. Was this satisfying? Okay, so sometimes it won't be satisfying, but it will have been the right thing to do. And so you do it. And, and then uh, if, it's, if you're satisfied with it, it's not wrong for you to feel satisfied if you've done the right thing. C.S. Lewis said in one of his books that if God is pleased with the work, the work can be pleased with itself. And I think that's true, that if you've done the right thing, it's okay to feel the satisfaction of God when you're done teaching the kids and you thought it went well and you felt like you really got through to them. It's good to be satisfied with that. But that can't be your primary motivation because there will be some days when you won't be satisfied and you'll want to give up and it won't be the right thing to do to give up. Okay, And then... Um, and I think some people check out because they don't know how to manage their motives. And I think if you do the right thing long enough, this will take care of itself. And here's what I mean. You might find it rewarding now to work for God, but there may come a time when it doesn't seem very rewarding. And that's when the motive is tested. Will you do the right thing even if it's not satisfying or rewarding? Will you do it because you know God is pleased with you even if it's hard? You can think about that. Take another example of doing ministry can win you approval, but the test will not be like, oh, I'm just afraid that people are approving of me, so I should stop doing this because I'm really valuing that. Don't stop doing that because there will come a time when people will not be approved of you. And so keep doing it, and if you do it in spite of them not being approved with you, you're approving you, then you can test and prove that your motive was never that. Does that make sense? Are you saying yes because you want me to be done? Last paragraph. So the true test of motivation comes when all the other reasons are gone and you do it anyway, and that test will come. So today we can ask whether we are the kind of people who take only for ourselves or we give out. Do we do what we do from the right motivations, primary motivations, or for secondary motivations? And uh, I think um, we need to respond to the Lord and ask him to evaluate our hearts today. And I've given some practical steps here, prayer, scriptures, tough questions from ourselves, good friends, and just doing the right thing. So stand with me if you would. Thanks for your gracious attention here. What if today um, we could pray a prayer and God would change our heart. You ever thought about that? That You can really pray a prayer and God can really change your heart. Like you might be struggling with the idea of doing ministry and you're thinking, man, I've been kind of selfish. I don't know if I can just change like that overnight. I don't know, but I do know that God has changed a lot of people who've been selfish and made them less selfish. And I think he still answers prayer and I think he loves to answer prayers that invite him to change us, right? Don't you? Like, the, I mean, he can move heaven and earth at his own will. He can cause all the lions to run a certain direction at the same time. He could cause the mountains to come and crash in and the waves to do a certain thing. But the one area he's limited, his freedom and power, is making us do what we don't want to do. He's given us a free will. And so... To me, that says when you actually say, God, I want your will, I want you to do something in me, now you're in agreement. And what are the limits on that? There aren't. So he can do some great things in us if we'll invite him to. Maybe you've been doing something for the Lord, but you're a little bit burned out. Maybe that's a test. Will we continue to be obedient to the Lord when it's not as rewarding as it once was? I wonder.
maybe it's been difficult for you, but can God come in and change our motives? Can he rearrange those priorities in our lives so that they suit his purposes? I think he can. So I'm going to open up the altar here if you'd like to come and pray. You could pray in a lot of different areas. Today you could say, Lord, I've not been serving you and I need to. And you could bow your knee before Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior. Maybe you're saying today, I'm serving you, but my life is really inward focused. and I'm a consumer. I'm a what have you done for me lately kind of person. And I think you could come to an altar today or pray at your seat and God could change that. Or maybe your priorities are a little out of order. And you would say, Lord, I, I want to do what you want me to do, but this is my this is what's important and I need you to rearrange that. God can do that. Maybe today you're not in any category I've just mentioned, but it maybe is another one is Lord, I just want to serve you more. I just want to serve you more. I want to be empowered to do what you've called me to do. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.